what is important, what might not be very obvious for people, is that when you vocalize louder, you use so much more energy. And if you really depend in your life on your vocalizations or on your acoustic activity, and it has to be twice the loudness or more, it is really making you have to to just spend so much more energy. And then with oil drilling, the sound can be so loud that it actually directly damages the animals. Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Matt St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. Hello all and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. On today's episode, we'll be diving into the world of bioacoustics, otherwise known as the soundscape of the natural world. When Jacques Cousteau wrote his film Le Monde du Silence, he actually got it wrong, because instead of being a silent world, the ocean is actually a pretty noisy place with sound being a medium that many species depend on. Today's guest is here to discuss the role of these acoustics in hunting in pinnipeds, the seal, sea lion and walrus family, in her paper titled The Dial Patterns in Harbour Porpoise Clicking Behaviour is Not a Response to Prey Activity. Anne Osieka is a PhD student at the University of Gdansk in Poland, studying behaviour and population dynamics of Arctic birds. She's also an associate researcher with Sea Search in South Africa, working on pinniped behaviour. Now, prior to joining the podcast, Anne told us that she had extremely limited access to opportunities and role models in marine science as an Eastern European immigrant. And she feels that it's really important to have some visibility for people from, as she called it, unlikely places to know that it's possible to embark upon a career in marine science. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. How about yourself? Yes, really good. Waking up. It's a sunny day, so very happy about that. So whereabouts in the world are you at the moment, Anna? What are you up to? Uh, So just now, I'm in Poland. We are just preparing for something super exciting. Uh, That is, we're about to set for an Arctic expedition to collect (gasps) a part of my PhD material and a lot of other people's stuff. I am incredibly jealous going to the Arctic. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. What will you be looking at out there? Um, So now we are looking at the Little Oak, which is a very small Arctic seabird. Uh, That's very, very uh, important for the Arctic ecosystems. And uh, my personal project is the personalities and vocal communication in that bird. Wow, that sounds, yeah, that sounds super exciting. Um, And so... Prior to this piece of research, you're you're now studying, did you say, the vocal communications of, of this bird? Exactly, yes. And, and prior to this, you were looking at the vocal communications or the acoustic behaviour of harbour porpoises, which is what we are 
here to discuss today, and that is your paper. Was it for your master's research? There was actually a small project during my master's. Um, so I had this great opportunity. I uh, did my master's at the University of Southern Denmark that is extremely research-focused. And so it gives its students these great options to do a lot of uh, smaller projects on the site. Oh. And uh, yeah, that was my tiny project. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a tiny project that made an absolutely great paper. Um, so today we will be discussing the dial patterns in harbour porpoise clicking behaviour is not a response to prey activity. So Anna, would you like to start off by telling us a quick summary, kind of an abstract-like podcast summary of uh, of your paper? Sure. So what we did, basically, um, is that we took uh, the opportunity that we had to look at every minute or every second of the acoustic activity of two captive porpoises that are kept right by the university station so that we had very easy access to these animals, um, giving us the super unique opportunity to actually follow these animals that are very difficult to find in the nature. So um, we recorded whatever sound they, they made throughout the year and then looked at any patterns that there might have been. So I checked uh, whether the clicking activity checked with different uh, light uh, availability, uh, whether it checked at the times that the animals were fed, whether it um, changed uh, when there were more tourists in the in the facility that these animals are kept at, etc., etc. And we did find that uh, indeed there was um, a very strange <laughs> pattern with um, with a, this unexplained so far peak around midnight, which wasn't dependent on any other uh, any other factor. And quite, of course, the activity was greater at night, where possibly the, the animals just need to compensate for the limited uh, light information that they're getting, so limited visual information that they're getting. But it wasn't dependent on lunar illumination, it wasn't dependent on water level, and quite importantly, it did not depend on uh, the possible hmm, the possible prey activity, because these animals are uh, are fed by hand. Again, since they are captive. <laughs> you know, from reading the paper, I thought it was really, really interesting because, you know, having these porpoises in, you know, captivity sort of gave you an invaluable opportunity to really compare their vocalizations to those of wild porpoises. And as you say, it's it's, it's been a bit of a, a question mark over exactly why they they vocalize the way they do at the, or at the times that they do and so i thought i really enjoyed reading the discussion section and sort of reading your your different explanations for for what it could be but mm. before we kind of go too far down the track let's go back a little bit um to porpoises themselves so could you tell us a little bit more about you know what a porpoise is for anyone listening that maybe doesn't know um, and also um, what their natural vocalization behavior is out in the wild. So for people that are not really great in my marine biology, uh, porpoises are small whales uh, belonging to the dolphin groups. So they kind of look like um, tiny dolphins with a very, very tiny, tiny beak. They are very shy in nature, so that's why it's quite difficult to, to meet them. But they're very acoustically active. So they use acoustic signals to um, see, that is to echolocate, 
and that's how they find their prey and how they hunt. They use it um, also to communicate uh, with their conspecifics, so other purposes, other purposes. But the great thing about the harbor purpose that is great for researchers, uh, the only thing that makes it relatively easy to study them is that they only use one type of signal. So it's always exactly the same click. And they just modulate, well, the properties of this one specific click. That's really interesting. And I've actually, from reading your paper, I learned that they have one of the lowest hearing thresholds found in any animal, um, which I thought was a pretty cool fact. Um, so as you say, they have this one type of vocalization and they just mediate the pitch. Um, and so, you know, what can vocalization patterns tell us about a species? You've kind of, you know, touched on it a little bit with your discussion and kind of working out why they vocalize. But, you know, what what is the purpose of these animals vocalizing in the first place? Uh, well, it's all the purposes you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so they would vocalize uh, to find their prey. So when they send an acoustic signal, when they make a vocalization, well, it's let's call it a vocalization, when they send out an acoustic signal, when it finds something in the environment, whatever it is, it gets reflected, gets back to them. That's how echolocation works. So this way they can see their environment through sound. And this is perhaps the most important uh, thing for, for the hub purposes. But yeah, they also use it uh, to communicate with other purposes. They probably, as most of animals do, vocalize or send out acoustic signals when they are in distress, etc., etc. So we can really learn a lot. We can understand the world of the animal by actually understanding how it vocalizes or what is its acoustic communication. So that's also why I'm interested in, in the sound of animals. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating how many you know different uses there are for sound, especially for animals within the marine environment. Um, now let's take it kind of towards the prey activity side. What is the natural prey of a porpoise and how how is sound used in, in location of prey or I guess the presence of prey out in the wild? How do we think that's used for a porpoise? So the natural prey for a porpoise is a um, wide range of kind of mid-sized um, ocean slash marine fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they eat many, many species, so I won't be getting into the details here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be here all morning. <laughs> so that the listeners could compare, like, oh, well, I also enjoyed that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, perhaps that that can make us more uh, empathetic towards the, the hyper purposes. Mm, we understand very how true. much we have in common. <laughs> <laughs> I also make noises when I see food. I get very happy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Not real. I kind of lost the question. Um, Sorry, the end of my question was, um, how do they use noise um, around food, around prey? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's again echolocation. That's how we... Um, basically, what, what happens is that normally when the herbivore was swimming around, it kind of scans the environment. So it sends, sends out the acoustic signal um, not so often. So it would swim around and let's call it say beep, 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 or click, click, click. <laughs> and then when one of these clicks encounters something that sounds like a fish, then the porpoises start uh, sending out more and more of the clicks. And as they hunt, as they focus on the target, 
this becomes really, really fast. So then you have this purpose going click, 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 click. <laughs> and this way, when this, uh, when these very fast clicks come back at the purpose, the picture or the mental picture, the acoustic picture it gets of its prey becomes really, really um, sharp. So it makes it possible to actually focus on it, get it, because you know. This is a very mobile environment. The fish are moving super fast. The porpoises are moving. The waves are moving. Everything is in constant motion. Mm. So it's actually super impressive now that you can yeah. um, see all these changes and uh, be able to, to capture someone just with sound. Um, so yeah, so it's often thought that this is actually the main reason the, the porpoises would be uh, acoustically active. And uh, yeah, hence the, the focus of of our study on uh, on the prey. So, from from that, you have then used a, a different kind of environment where you've been very easily able to, you know, take away some of these variables, prey being one of them, because you're using um, captive harbour porpoises. So they were kept in this uh, what, what looks to be a sea pen from your paper. I know that you've said in your paper that you've removed prey as an element in terms of being able to monitor their their clicking, but um, how could you be sure that there were? W- w- sorry, to rephrase that, w- w- was the removing the prey element by uh, you know simply not having wild fish in the area, or was it because you were removing hunger by um, having them fed captively during the day? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question, actually. So the strange thing of this paper or of this study um, is that it's not an actual experiment in a way. It's kind of an experiment that made itself by the conditions. Mm. So um, I personally believe that it's um, a bit awkward, at least, to <laughs> to have cetaceans in captivity. <laughs> um, yes. So it's you know it's not a very great situation here, but since they are already there, I wanted to or we wanted to maximize uh, the information that we get of these animals. So since they're already in this imperfect situation, we think if you have a way that's completely uninvasive that can make it better for science and as a result, better for the animals in the wild. So we did not set up uh, any any special uh, well set up <laughs> for this. So that was not an experiment per se. Uh, these animals live in, um, as you said, uh, somewhat a sea pen. So this facility has um, a small pool that's actually connected to the sea. It's just divided by um, this meshed kind of wire. So there's a net that's not dangerous for, for the purposes. They can't hurt themselves on it, but the water flows in and out from the actual sea. So it is possible that actually very small fish can enter this pen. So in fact, we cannot completely exclude prey presence. However, it's a very small fish that are able to, to enter this pen. So they would probably not be the actual normal, um, normal prey of purposes in the wild. Okay. So um, another thing that happens there is that since these animals are kept in captivity, they are fed by hand um, during the, the standard feeding hours. So our assumption here is that they get what they need and more from the trainers during the training slash feeding se- uh, sessions during the day. So if there is any hunting occurring, this is just 
something of a play that would also be occurring normally in the wild. So even if we have fish there that the animals are uh, are following, this is not really an important factor in our study mm-hmm. because the major part and the necessary part of the actual caloric, uh, caloric consumption of these animals comes from the trainer. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, and I think it's probably a good point to jump in now and, and just say, why, why, what is the purpose? I know you said that you didn't set up the, the, the porpoises being there. Yeah. Um, but I think that the people listening to the podcast will ask questions about captivity. So it's probably good to just get that out of the way. Yeah. Um, what, what was the, how did these porpoises come to be there and, and why are they still kept in captivity? Is it um, for touristic purposes? Is it a rehab center? Um, when did the porpoises arrive um, and, and why are they kept there? Oh, I don't remember the first purpose that arrived in the center. So these are purposes from the Fjordenbelt Center in Kötemind, Denmark. And uh, this is a somewhat interesting uh, place. So by itself, Fjordenbelt is an education center. So it is visited by tourists. But, you know, it's one of these uh, kind of oceanariums that are very small and focused only on workshops and showing uh, the marine biology very closely mm. to, to people visiting. And the first purposes kept there, they were kept exactly for educational reasons. So how Fjordenbelt gets their animals into the center is that they are not caught actively. Uh, they get hold of animals that were accidentally caught in fishing nets, but are still alive. Mm. They function by some governmental permits, um, keeping the animals for research and education. So in this way, the animals that could possibly be damaged, not necessarily though. So <laughs> that could be a bit of an ethical question. I'm not yeah. going to give you my personal opinion on <laughs> here, but uh, I am quite sure those are kept in, in good conditions, at least, yeah. as much yeah. as you can do it. So yeah, they're used... Uh, they're shown to tourists during training sessions where they can actually see the animals interact while they are being trained and fed. Uh, but perhaps mostly they're used for research by the amazing, strong Danish team of marine mammalogists and mm-hmm. uh, acousticians. So they have done some really great and very important studies that would be absolutely impossible to do in the wild. Yeah. So these were yeah. a lot of ecolocation experiments, studying the physiology, the diving physiology of these animals. So you know, it's always a bit... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it, really? Because, yeah. you know, as as mentioned, having them in these conditions where you can control variables and, and certain, um, you know, other influences is an invaluable opportunity for really learning and understanding these animals in a way that we wouldn't be able to if they were wild. But it definitely does, you know, the ethical question does come up because obviously there's been a heck of a lot of work on cetaceans in captivity. And, you know, I've seen pictures of the sea pen. It, it's not small, but it's not big. Um, and it is questionable that they're, they're keeping them there for educational purposes. But if we put that aside, your study and your paper is a brilliant contribution to this field of science and in understanding these creatures more. So it's it's a double-edged sword, really. Um, mm. 
And so this kind of leads on nicely then to the method. So you've explained that these porpoises are being kept in the sea pen and they're being fed. So you're taking, you're controlling for that. Can you explain the method that you use to actually measure and record their vocalizations? So what I used are these very special porpoise uh, <laughs> recorders called CPOTs. <laughs> So uh, people that are on the sea quite often, maybe sometimes you can actually see them hanging somewhere uh, because quite often they're attached to buoys um, in the in the open seas. Um, they look like about a meter long plastic cylinders. So these are recorders that are not normal microphones or hydrophones, but instead they record clicks. Mm -hmm. um, so they can be used to study uh, dolphins, porpoises, all the animals that make these kind of sounds. Because of that, it's very easy uh, to automatically just sieve out all the information that is not a purpose. Mm -hmm. You can uh, greatly set up your, uh, well, like all your filters. So depending if you're focused on all the clicks that are produced, like in my case, if you're uh, only interested in uh, feeding behavior, then you would probably only look for the clicks that are produced more often, etc., etc. Mm. So you've got these passive acoustic monitors in the water. What, yeah. What's the likelihood of picking up acoustic signals from other porpoises that aren't the captive ones? At uh, this place, pretty much none. So this is a sea pen. It is connected to, to the sea. However, it's very close to the port. There are some uh, wild porpoises in the area, but they don't come in to the port really. Mm. Probably a smart move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, so you you left these passive acoustic monitoring devices down there for quite a considerable amount of time. I read that it was a year in total that you left them there. And over the year, you went backwards and forwards and made sure that batteries um, and that the equipment was functioning. So you have a really, really large data set. And that obviously, you know, you were recording the dial pattern. So you were recording data day and night for a whole year. That's a heck of a lot of data to collect. It is. <laughs> that, that's, why, that's why it's so great to, to actually have access to these animals there. And, and so now you have, yeah, well, that's, that's the brilliant thing about captivity, isn't it? You, you know that they're going to be there all year round for, for collecting data. So you've managed to collect an entire year's worth of data, which means that you're, in theory, not only able to collect this dial data um, for, for a day's cycle of their clicking, clicking noises, but also seasonal throughout the year. So let's go kind of into what you found now. What were, when were the peaks for, for porpoise clicking, not just in the day, but in the year? Which months? Are there any months of the year where we're seeing uh, higher clicking activity? Yes, in fact, oh, this is actually super, uh, super interesting. <laughs> So uh, throughout the day, uh, the main pattern is, is quite easy and uh, one could think of it intuitively, possibly. So the purpose is focused the most around uh, sunset and sunrise. So these are the times that they become more active, the light is becoming just greater or just less available. And that was constant all throughout the year. Um, there was one very strange peak around midnight. We have no idea how it happens. I actually <laughs> was so perplexed with that peak that uh, I just put the logger in a barrel for some time to try to see if it's maybe just an issue with the logger. 
oh. put the recorder, but the barrel did not detect any, <laughs> any uh, pixel blue lights. So these are the purposes. But throughout the year, there was this very interesting peak uh, throughout the summer months, actually. So I believe that was June, July. Yeah. Yep. June and July. That we can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> we just read the paper and I think it's been a little bit longer for Anna. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a while for me. So yeah, uh, we don't really know if it's uh, that they possibly vocalize more because they would like to mate. Is <laughs> it some socially driven behavior? Is it because some great uh, opportunities in the environment arise? Are they just, I don't know, happy because the water is warm and you can play around more so it vocalizes more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, it's really interesting. You know, one of my favorite findings from from your paper is that um, they they chirp, chirp, click. Sorry, uh, not chirp. <laughs> they, they click at, at dawn and dusk because there was this brilliant paper that um, came out. I think it was in twenty sixteen by. Um, Gosh, Miles Parsons, maybe. And it was about um, the temporal patterns of reef fish and mm. how they chorus at dawn and dusk, yes. like in the same way that birds chirp. And so, you know, it's absolutely fascinating to see that again replicated in the acoustic soundscape by harbour porpoises. Yeah. And, and interestingly, also, you, you mentioned in your paper that there's or you referenced um, other studies that have shown that there are, you know, strong lunar and tidal effects on the clicking activity of spinner dolphins, dusky and common dolphins and even short uh, fin pilot whales. So it's, it's so fascinating how, as you say, Mads, um, a lot of these animals kind of, you know, in, in tune with their environment um, and, and the over the day have, you know, like a dawn chorus or, or, or sing at different times. I love it. Yeah. And coming back to the, um, this idea of the, the being more sound in the summer months as well, this this was kind of, you know, I thought this was interesting because in my head, <laughs> not that I'm a porpoise or have <laughs> I studied porpoises before, but I guess I envisioned that during the winter months where you have longer periods of darkness at night and say, you know, they're using echolocation to essentially locate themselves uh, around at night. I guess that if I theorized, I think they would be using more noise at night during the longer, darker nights than in the summer where you have these much, much shorter periods of darkness. However, your paper finds the opposite. So I guess, I guess uh, not that I know anything about this, but it is interesting to see, therefore, that you, you could theorize that perhaps it's to do with reproduction um, in the summer months. I don't know if you had any thoughts on, you know, the duration of darkness and how that would affect them. Well, we were, in fact, expecting to see a, a much higher acoustic activity throughout the winter months. So that was a bit of a surprise uh, here. The same actually went for the <laughs> for the tides and the lunar patterns, which, uh, as you said, they are present in dolphins in the wild. And we had seen no effect whatsoever of them here. So, well, with the tide and, uh, and moonlight... The effect in the wild is actually probably uh, related to fish activity, which is great that we don't have it here. Not that there should be no fish activity. And uh, with light availability, that was just a bit of a shock. So yeah, um, I would guess, or our best interpretation of that is, that the animals 
are actually uh, displaying some social behavior that are maintained in captivity uh, that would normally occur during the summer. And I can't remember if you said already, but were both of the penguins, sorry, were both of the porpoises, (laughs) not penguins, both of the porpoises the same sex in captivity? Yes, they are. There were two females. Uh, One of them, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, they were both females. So no mating there that we know of. One thing that's, you know, just cropped into my mind is that... um, there's there's a much bigger issue in our oceans as well that cetaceans and other species that are highly reliant on vocalizations, you know, they're the soundscape of our oceans is completely changing and noise pollution is having a profound impact. And I know I'm going off on a complete segue here, but I just, you know, Mads, you've done a lot of research in this area and it's it's just interesting to think porpoises, as we mentioned, have one of the lowest frequencies. Um, or hit, sorry, hearing thresholds found in any animal. Um, but do we, you know, do either of you know much about how noise pollution is impacting porpoises in the wild? Well, porpoises and noise. The first things that come to my mind is actually wind turbines. But Ooh. with wind turbines, what I know is that they are severely impacted during the production or well, the, mm. the construction of the turbines. But then later on. It's actually quite okay for them, especially as the, the wind turbines, uh, the offshore ones, uh, tend to produce um, artificial reefs. Mm. So that actually is like an enrichment to the to the environment. I cannot think of, of any specific. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just coming in with big questions left, right, and centre. But I um I did bioacoustics for my master's thesis, but I was looking at coral reef fish uh, rather than cetaceans. I Really, I have very limited knowledge on cetaceans, but um, in, in kind of a general way, uh, we're seeing the impacts of always of noise pollution. Sorry, we're seeing right across the board. It has this ability to disrupt communications between individuals by masking um, noise pollution. Is very, um, very loud, especially when it comes from things like shipping, drilling, piling, wind farms, um, and so. You know, we are seeing in some cetacean species that they are making their vocalizations louder. Um, But I can't really comment too much on top of that. Um, Yeah, as you're saying, uh, making vocalizations louder, this occurs. And I believe all of the cetacean species that uh, we we had the opportunity to study. And uh, what is important, what might not be very obvious for people, is that when you vocalize louder, you use so much more energy. And if you really depends in your life on your vocalizations or on your acoustic activity and it has to be twice the loudness or more it is really making you to just spend so much more energy in seas that have less and less fish for example right yeah and then with oil drilling and um, the sound can be so loud that it Mm. actually directly damages the animals or Mm. kills them so mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I think of <laughs> any times where I've had to put a lot of energy into um, screaming, singing loudly at a gig, you know, it, it, it does, <laughs> it takes it out of you. And I know that's probably the weirdest comparison ever, but it's so true. And it's so fascinating when you start dipping into these issues more and, and you realize the complexities of it. It's not just that, oh, you know, cetaceans need to start vocalizing louder. It's like, the backstory to that is that it takes more energy to do so. And so, yeah, it's just a, a fascinating 
kind of thing to to kind of touch on. Um, but this is kind of rounding up lovely, but we'd love to talk to you a little bit more about what you're doing now and what your future research is is on. So now I am kind of doing two major things. So um, I'm collaborating with one uh, NGO in South Africa and Namibia uh, on um, pinniped vocal communication and behavior. And I am currently doing my PhD on seabird uh, behavior and vocalizations. So that's little oak personality and uh, and vocal communication in brief. Wow, that's incredibly interesting. Um, and I would definitely love to hear more about that as well. We'd love to have you back on the podcast mm-hmm. when your research has progressed um, with, with Arctic birds as well, because uh, I don't think we've actually done a bird podcast yet, a seabird podcast. So that would be... And I love seabirds. <laughs> That would be very exciting. Um, And I'd also love to hear more about your background, because prior to this podcast, um, you said that uh, as an Eastern European immigrant, uh, you had extremely limited opportunities and role models in marine science. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Well, this is maybe a bit of the ignored background in marine science, I would say. So it's, it's great. Now we have, you know, more and more conversation about how do we include people of very different backgrounds, people of backgrounds that are kind of traditionally discriminated against or excluded from the field. Mm. Um, but being Eastern European somehow falls into this gray area that makes you invisible. So, you know, you're not very visibly different. However, there is often super limited funding or very limited opportunities. This is the case for Poland, for example. So there is some research done. There are some people working on, uh, you know, uh, working in the field, but it's not quite often uh, what you would want it to be. Mm. And it's, uh, well, the greatest chances, as usually, are in the northwest of the world. (laughs) Um, And then moving there. So for, in my case, um, that was, for example, Denmark, which on one hand was amazing because the Danish education system, it, it's really very inclusive. It's free. It provides you with some extra research funding and scholarships and all. But you are still the strange other that is traditionally a cleaner or, you know, <laughs> uh, that's, that's not very uh, motivating at times. And you can really feel it. And I have felt it, as, as did my friends from similar backgrounds. Well, for me, another thing was that after I graduated, I thought I was, I was amazing because <laughs> I had so much experience and um, I worked on so many projects, so many NGOs, volunteered for years and had like all the certificates and all. Like, I believe, sadly, most of us do in ocean sciences, that, you know, people are so overqualified and so keen on just doing, you know, paying to work just to be able to to be there out in the field but it took me over two years to actually find a job gosh Uh, (laughs) yeah um so that was horrible and great actually because how i ended up is that i kind of had to rethink everything i wanted to do and really deeply understand what can i cut out and I ended up with this amazing supervisor, the most supportive and 
great, kind, intelligent person, you have no idea, (laughs) (laughs) that is actually uh, very similar to me and many of her experiences and backgrounds. So that makes everything so much easier. Well, this is also so privileged in a way, no? To be able to end up with someone who actually shares your experience. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, I absolutely love to hear that you have found someone that is a, is a brilliant supervisor to you and in some ways a role model as well, because, you know, this does keep cropping up in, in our podcast is that it is really, really important to have female role models um, and role models in general that you can relate to in marine science um, and how, you know, intrinsic that is to shaping someone's own career and someone's own experience of marine biology. Um, so it's really, really brilliant to hear that you have that you have found that in your current supervisor. But I'd also love to know, because I think it's really interesting that you, that you say, you know, coming from this background, you know, there's no physical difference you feel that sets you apart it's more of a an access to opportunities and you know the way that people perceive you um what would you like to see change for people who share the same background as you uh hmm. i think mostly have the access have the access to training have the access to field work um that's one thing and what i believe is perhaps one of the biggest uh, challenges now in the field in general is this bizarre requirement to work for free for such a long time. Oh, yes. (laughs) I honestly couldn't tell you any field biologist, marine biologist specifically, that um, hasn't worked for free for a long period of time. (sighs) But you see, this is so extremely limiting. So, I mean, if you come from a place um, or from family, from any kind of background that is able to provide you with the security of uh, actually taking some years pretty much off to just volunteer. Well, this is amazing, no? But it really should not be a requirement. And this is, I believe, very limited, uh, you know, to people of certain nationalities and people of certain family backgrounds. So, yeah, um, just excluding this horrible notion that we must volunteer half of our lives I think mm-hmm. that would be the, perhaps the, the biggest tool for inclusion for anyone, really. We actually um, have two papers in preparation right now. Well, well one in press. Uh, one of them investigating exactly this, the, the amount and the scale of unpaid work in ocean sciences. And it's horrible. It's really worse than anything we could compare it to. Yeah, <laughs> that is awesome to hear that you're doing that, because I mean, I think that there's been a groundswell of kind of conversation around this recently. You know, I think a lot more of us are kind of thinking about this and going, oh, actually, this is ridiculous. We're highly skilled people that go to university and pay a lot of money to obtain a degree. And then we're expected to do incredibly intensive um, and highly skilled work for free. And as you say, you know, Anna, I'm one of those people that has spent years volunteering my time, spending my money to try and get to a point where I apparently have have enough skills, <laughs> more skills mm. than I can even sort of list on, you know, on, on a piece of paper to be valued enough to be paid. And then even then, even then, you're not paid much at all. And it is just such a big problem. 
Yeah. And I think it also, I think a lot of this stems from the chronic underfunding of the industry. And mm. it is so incredibly disappointing to see how little funds are poured into marine science that, you know, I don't know if that is the driving factor for there being so many unpaid opportunities because we can't even really call them internships. You are doing the full what should be paid work of a scientist for for no for no money essentially and so whether that's driven by the fact that there is a chronic lack of funding or whether it's driven by something that has evolved into a mindset where this has become okay and so people are exploitative of the fact that there are so many people now who are highly qualified who do want mm. to gain that extra experience um but it is certainly a, a rampant problem in our industry. I think we are coming now kind of to the end of the podcast. Um, to turn this onto a slightly lighter note, Anna, were there any closing closing points you'd like to make or that how, how would you like us to see this industry and this unpaid work industry improve in the future? Uh, well, what is kind of reassuring to me is that a lot of this unpaid work is actually illegal. Um, so, you know, these are, for example, full-time positions uh, that are highly qualified, that are offered in places with very strict labor protection laws. So that gives me hope that we're actually able to remove this and somehow strive to, first of all, fund science better, but also push people that are able to pay, like private companies, whale-watching companies, I don't know, drilling companies that also don't pay or pay very little to their workers. So yeah, it looks like what is the actual source of the problem can be relatively easily removed. And with all the passion that is in the field, it just, you know, it sounds like there is no way, but a great way for the ocean sciences, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's oh, it's such a difficult one, isn't it? Um, <sighs> trying to reform an entire industry for the better. Um, but Anna, I think that's all we've got time for today. Did you have any final words of wit and wisdom for our listeners before we jump off? Oh my God, words of wit and wisdom. Wit, probably not. <laughs> Be there, really don't let people crush you. Think of yourself because you should also be conserved. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, well, Anna, thank you so much for coming on today. It was absolutely brilliant to have you here to talk about your recent paper. And again, we would love to speak to you uh, again in the future about uh, not only your future research on seabirds, but also on these papers that you've just talked about that are coming out about this volunteerism and this unpaid work in the industry too. So for anyone who would like to come and follow you and um, hear more about you and your work, is there somewhere they can go on social media? Yes, I am. I am on Twitter and everywhere. <laughs> I believe, well, Twitter is the, is the best for, uh, for scientific stuff. So I am A. Oshetska on Twitter. Probably easier if you look up the paper, since my name is not English friendly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll also um, put it in the description of the podcast below for anyone listening. Um, so yeah, thank you once again, Anna, for coming on. It was absolutely brilliant to speak today and hopefully we'll get the opportunity to speak again soon. Thank you for having me.
You have been listening to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, brought to you by Women in Ocean Science and hosted by me, Matt Sinclair and Charlie Young. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give it a share and you can find us on socials as at Women in Ocean Science. We are a non-profit organisation, so every like, comment, share and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and I hope you have an awesome week.